a cause of action or right of action, in law, is a set of facts sufficient to justify suing to obtain money or property, or to justify the enforcement of a legal right against another party. The term also refers to the legal theory upon which a plaintiff brings suit, such as breach of contract, battery, or false imprisonment. The legal document which carries a claim is often called a statement of claim in English law, or a complaint in U.S. federal practice and in many U.S. states. It can be any communication notifying the party to whom it is addressed of an alleged fault which resulted in damages, often expressed in the amount of money the receiving party should pay slash reimburse. To pursue a cause of action, a plaintiff pleads or alleges facts in a complaint, the pleading that initiates a lawsuit. A cause of action generally encompasses both the legal theory, the legal wrong the plaintiff claims to have suffered, and the remedy, the relief a court is asked to grant. Often the facts or circumstances that entitle a person to seek judicial relief may create multiple causes of action. Although it is fairly straightforward to file a statement of claim in most jurisdictions, if it is not done properly, then the filing party may lose her case due to simple technicalities. The need to balance procedural expediency and continuity, the technicalities of which one might fall foul, expressed as procedure rules, be they civil or criminal, must be balanced with the highest priority of all, to achieve justice the court and its officers are obliged to serve justice first. There are a number of specific causes of action, including, contract-based actions, statutory causes of action, torts such as assault, battery, invasion of privacy, fraud, slander, negligence, intentional infliction of emotional distress, and suits in equity such as unjust enrichment and quantum merit. The points a plaintiff must prove to win a given type of case are called the elements of that cause of action. For example, for a claim of negligence, the elements are, the, existence of a, duty, breach, of that duty, proximate cause, by that breach, and damages. If a complaint does not allege facts sufficient to support every element of a claim, the court, upon motion by the opposing party, may dismiss the complaint for failure to state a claim for which relief can be granted. The defendant to a cause of action must file an answer to the complaint in which the claims can be admitted or denied, including denial on the basis of insufficient information in the complaint to form a response. The answer may also contain counterclaims in which the counterclaim plaintiff states its own causes of action. Finally, the answer may contain affirmative defenses. Most defenses must be raised at the first possible opportunity either in the answer or by motion or are deemed waived. A few defenses, in particular a court's lack of subject matter jurisdiction, need not be pleaded and may be raised at any time. Implied cause of action. Implied cause of action is a term used in United States statutory and constitutional law for circumstances when a court will determine that a law that creates rights also allows private parties to bring a lawsuit, even though no such remedy is explicitly provided for in the law. Implied causes of action arising under the Constitution of the United States are treated differently from those based on statutes. Constitutional causes of action. Perhaps the best-known case creating an implied cause of action for constitutional rights is Bivens v. Six Unknown Named Agents. 1971. In that case, the United States Supreme Court ruled that an individual whose Fourth Amendment freedom from unreasonable search and seizures had been violated by federal agents could sue for the violation of the amendment itself, despite the lack of any federal statute authorizing such a suit. The existence of a remedy for the violation was implied from the importance of the right violated. In a later case, Schweiker v. Chiliki, 1988, the Supreme Court determined that a cause of action would not be implied for the violation of rights where the U.S. Congress had already provided a remedy for the violation of rights at issue, even if the remedy was inadequate. Statutory causes of action. Federal law. An implied private right of action is not a cause of action expressly created by a statute. Rather, a court interprets the statute to silently include such a cause of action. 
Since the 1950s, the United States Supreme Court has taken three different approaches, each more restrictive than the prior, in deciding when to create private rights of action. In J.I. Case Company v. Borak, 1964, a case under the Securities Exchange Act of 1934, the court, examining the statute's legislative history and looking at what it believed were the purposes of the statute, held that a private right of action should be implied under Section 14a of the Act. Under the circumstances, the court said, it was the duty of the courts to be alert to provide such remedies as are necessary to make effective the congressional purpose. In Court v. Ash, 1975, the issue was whether a civil cause of action existed under a criminal statute prohibiting corporations from making contributions to a presidential campaign. The court said that no such action should be implied, and laid down four factors to be considered in determining whether a statute implicitly included a private right of action whether the plaintiff is part of the class of persons for whose especial benefit the statute was enacted, whether the legislative history suggests that Congress intended to create a cause of action, whether granting an implied cause of action would support the underlying remedial scheme set down in the statute, and whether the issue would be one that is traditionally left to state law. The Supreme Court used the four-part court v. Ash test for several years, and in applying the test, for the most part, the court refused to create causes of action. An important application of the test, however, came in Cannon v. University of Chicago, 1979, which recognized an implied private right of action. There, a plaintiff sued under Title IX of the Education Amendments of 1972, which prohibited sex discrimination in any federally funded program. The court, stating that the female plaintiff was within the class protected by the statute, that Congress had intended to create a private right of action to enforce the law, that such a right of action was consistent with the remedial purpose Congress had in mind, and that discrimination was a matter of traditionally federal and not state concern. Justice Powell, however, dissented and criticized the court's approach to implied rights of action, which he said was incompatible with the doctrine of separation of powers. It was the job of Congress, not the federal courts, Justice Powell said, to create causes of action. Therefore, the only appropriate analysis was whether Congress intended to create a private right of action. Absent the most compelling evidence of affirmative congressional intent, a federal court should not infer a private cause of action. Very shortly after Cannon was decided, the court adopted what legal scholars have called a new approach to the issue in Touche Ross and Company v. Reddington, 1979. At issue was an implied right under another section of the Securities Exchange Act of 1934, and the court said that the first three factors mentioned in Court v. Ash were simply meant to be relied upon in determining legislative intent. The ultimate question, the court concluded, is one of legislative intent, not one of whether this court thinks that it can improve upon the statutory scheme that Congress enacted into law. Justice Scalia and Justice O'Connor have stated that they believe Touche Ross effectively overruled the older court v. Ash test. The controlling strict constructionist test in effect today was set forth by Justice Scalia and Alexander v. Sandoval, 2001, in which the key issue is whether the text and structure of the statute alone reveal whether Congress intended to create a private right of action. Under Sandoval, contextual evidence of legislative intent is relevant only insofar as it clarifies the meaning of the text. State law. Even though court was effectively overruled, many states still use the first three court factors for their general test for determining whether an implied private cause of action exists under a state statute, including Colorado, Connecticut, Hawaii, Iowa, New York, Pennsylvania, Tennessee, West Virginia, and Washington. Historically, Texas courts had wandered around in a chaotic fashion between the court test and a liberal construction test roughly similar to the old Barack test, but in 2004, the Texas Supreme Court overruled both and adopted the textualist Sandoval test. Some states have developed their own tests independently of the Barack, court, 
and Sandoval line of federal cases. For example, prior to 1988, California courts used a vague liberal construction test, under which any statute embodying a public policy was privately enforceable by any injured member of the public for whose benefit the statute was enacted. This was most unsatisfactory to conservatives on the Supreme Court of California, such as Associate Justice Frank K. Richardson, who articulated a strict constructionist view in a 1979 dissenting opinion. As Richardson saw it, the legislature's silence on the issue of whether a cause of action existed to enforce a statute should be interpreted as the legislature's intent to not create such a cause of action. In November 1986, Chief Justice Rose Byrd and two fellow liberal colleagues were ejected from the court by the state's electorate for opposing the death penalty. Byrd's replacement, Chief Justice Malcolm M. Lucas, authored an opinion in 1988 that adopted Richardson's strict constructionist view with regard to the interpretation of the California Insurance Code. A 2008 decision by the Court of Appeal and a 2010 decision by the Supreme Court itself finally established that Justice Richardson's strict constructionism as adopted by the Lucas Court would retroactively apply to all California statutes. In the 2010 decision in Lou v. Hawaiian Gardens Casino, Justice Ming Chin wrote for a unanimous court that we begin with the premise that a violation of a state statute does not necessarily give rise to a private cause of action. A case information statement, or cover sheet, is a document which is filed with a court clerk at the commencement of a civil lawsuit in many of the court systems of the United States. It is generally filed along with a complaint. Some states use similar documents for criminal cases as well. Purpose and Terminology The purpose of a case information statement is to let the judge and court clerk know what type of case is being brought by the parties, so that they can better prepare for the case to come to trial. Some courts, for example, the New Jersey Superior Court, put different types of cases on different tracks, to place limits on how long discovery they should take. If the lawyer filling out the case information statement makes a mistake, or if circumstances change or new information is discovered, the party wishing to amend the statement may do so by making a motion to the judge in charge of the case. Some courts use the term cover sheet for this document, but the content and purpose is the same. For example, the equivalent document in federal district courts is Form JS44, Civil Cover Sheet. Similarly, the Superior Courts of California have a Form CMO10, Civil Case Cover Sheet. Case Information Statements in Civil Cases Questions typically asked on civil case information statements include The underlying subject matter of the lawsuit Amount in controversy or remedies demanded whether a jury trial is requested by either party, whether there are additional parties to be joined, whether the lawsuit is a potential class action or some other type of complex case, whether there are similar actions pending in other courts, what, if any, previous relationship exists between slash among the parties, for example, employment, familial, business associates, etc., whether attorney fees are in contention, in some types of cases, attorney fees must be paid by the losing party. In family law cases, such as divorce and child custody matters, the questions asked on the case information statement are often longer and more detailed, requiring recitation of each party's employment situation, current income, and the assets and liabilities of each party. Case information statements in criminal cases. Questions typically asked on criminal case information statements include the attorneys involved in the case, the basic facts and circumstances involved, whether the defendant is currently in custody or out on bail, whether there are co-defendants, whether all issues will be disposed of by this case, whether the constitutionality of any statute, regulation, or executive order is being challenged, New York's request for judicial intervention. New York's equivalent document is the request for judicial intervention, which is necessary because in New York a case begins with the service of a complaint and nothing is filed with the trial court until absolutely necessary, 
usually because a discovery dispute develops, someone wants to file a dispositive motion, or it is actually time for trial. At that time, the party seeking judicial intervention files ARJI, which asks for information similar to ACIS or cover sheet, and files with the court all relevant documents from the party's own version of the case file. 